Well, as some of you may know, I was a tennis player back in the day. Not all that long ago, but it feels like back in the day for me. I started in high school, picked up the sport then, and then played through college. And, you know, the guys on my team that I most wanted to learn from, that I most respected, were the guys that could really adapt their game. Adapt to the conditions, adapt to their opponent. Guys who could just figure out a way to compete. And, you know, for me, I was kind of one-dimensional as a tennis player. I worked hard, I ran hard, I trained hard. I ran a lot of balls down. I had pretty good feel around the net. I could take some points that way, but I was kind of one-dimensional. I had a hard time adapting. Back in my early 20s and my mid-20s, when I had a little more free time in my life, I was still playing a little tennis here and there, and so one summer I signed up for a charity tournament. And so I show up to the tournament, I, I check in, and they say, okay, you'll be at court three, and you'll play so-and-so. So, so I go to the court, I, I was the first there, I settle in, I start to loosen up a little bit. A couple minutes later, in walks my opponent, and I could tell immediately that this guy had like 20 years on me. I think this guy, he's got to be in his 40s, right? So here I am, 25, I'm thinking, all right. Nice, easy first round, roll through this guy. And, and, and mind you, you know, this guy brought his lawn. He brought a lawn chair so he could sit and rest when we changed sides and hit a big jug of water. Right? I'm thinking, okay, let's see how this goes. So we warmed up. You know, we hit, hit the ball back and forth. And I could tell, I mean, I could tell this guy had some game. He had some consistency, right? And, uh, but after just a few points, I could tell that this tennis match would feel like playing a brick wall. Like, this guy didn't miss. Everything came back in play, and basically he let me make all my own mistakes. Punch the ball back, not with a whole lot of power, but then I would just, you know, just create unforced errors, forced errors, left and right. So I could not figure this guy out. And so I was quickly down a couple games, and I'm, you know, here I'm thinking, I, I've got to try something else. Like my game, my one dimension, it's not working. And so I tried some serve and volley, tried some different things. Nothing is working. This guy just continues to win point after point. I continue to make all the mistakes. And so eventually the first set's over. I think I won maybe one game in the set, right? And so as we enter the second set, I'm like, ah. This is it. If I don't figure it out now, this is not going to work out. But, but quickly, my confidence is fading. I'm thinking, I am not going to beat this guy. And so at this point, my attitude shifts from, all right, I'm just going to roll through this guy into round two, to how do I keep this from being a total embarrassment? How do I keep from just being utterly destroyed? Unfortunately, the second set didn't go much better than the first. I think I won one game off of this guy. And so what happens was 45-year-old man with lawn chair beat 25-year-old me. And so all I could do, of course, was to pack my bags and tuck my tail and head home. When our text this morning, as we continue in Joshua, we encounter a people who knew they couldn't beat their opponent either. 
but they figure out a way to avoid being totally destroyed. In my, my silly tennis story, of course, all that was really at stake was my pride. But in this text that we see in Joshua, what's at stake was quite literally their lives, their families, their city. So Joshua 9 is kind of a bizarre story. It's, it's, it's an interesting story. It's an intriguing story. But as with all of God's word, we have to kind of stare at it for a while to figure out what is this saying to us? What does this have for us? And so to do that this morning, I want to look at three dimensions of this story, which strike us. And the first is that this, this people of Gibeon, these Gibeonites, they demonstrate cunning wisdom. Really what we see here is brilliant in the plan that they devise. But then the second thing in response to that is that Israel acts with sinful foolishness. But then ultimately, I believe that as we stare at this, and as we dig at this text, that what we see is that in the midst of this whole drama that unfolds, is that God shows up with his hidden grace, nonetheless. And so as we look at this text, as we ask the Lord to let it speak to our hearts, let us first pray. And so, God, we come again to your word, and we thank you for it. And Lord, where it's difficult, we pray for wisdom. Where it challenges us, stirs us, we pray for courage. And so, God, as we've worshipped and as we've sung this morning, you are faithful, and evermore you will be faithful. And so, God, would you speak to our hearts by this word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the cunning wisdom of the Gibeonites in verse 7 of chapter 9 identifies these residents of the city of Gibeon as Hivites, Hivites. And so Gibeon is just one of the cities in the land of Canaan that these Hivites occupied. And in Joshua 3 verse 9, these Hivites are identified as one of the people groups, one of several, that God's people are commanded to drive out, to just annihilate to wipe out as they conquer and settle this land. And we look all the way back, some 400 years before this moment with Joshua, where we pick up, to Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. And it's in this verse that Abraham makes a, a covenant with God, or rather God makes a covenant with Abraham. And God says to this man, Abraham, that he will give Abraham's descendants this very land that Joshua and the Israelites are now entering and conquering and taking possession of. Genesis 15, 16, God speaking to Abraham, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Amorites just generally referring to the Canaanites, the people of of this land, and that's sort of parsed out more specifically to the different people groups that we hear about. And so far, as we, as we saw last Sunday, if you remember, the conquest of Jericho, the conquest of Ai, so far it's just been utter annihilation. And so in Jericho, God says, destroy everything that breathes. Not only that, destroy all the material things. It's all devoted to me. Destroy everything. We saw how Achan disobeys that command. And then in Ai... In chapter 8, 
God says, destroy everything that breathes again. But he says to them, you can keep some of the stuff in this case. So Israel is allowed to keep some of the plunder. We saw earlier in Joshua, other kings east of the Jordan are just mowed down, annihilated left and right. God is giving his people victory after victory. And as we look at texts like this in the Old Testament particularly, these trouble us. These stir us. These challenge us. Because this sure sounds like a sort of a genocide of sorts, doesn't it? And we recognized last week as we looked at those particularly hard passages, we recognize that we, we affirm, as we come into the tension of these texts, we affirm a few things. We affirm that God is holy. He is just in all of his ways. He is pure. We affirm that God was, was doing a new thing in his people Israel that he is telling and commanding to enter into this land and take possession of it. And this new thing that he was doing, as we see in Scripture, was meant to bless all the nations, even though this purification was necessary. But there's some intentionality behind this. This is not just haphazard. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 and following. God says, however, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And this is the key. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. And so there's some, there's some sketchy spiritual stuff, religious practices, false religion, idolatry. There's deviant sexual practices that are part of Canaanite worship. There's even, in some cases, child sacrifice. And so God has to ensure a pure worship, an undefiled worship, an uncompromised worship. And so he commands this purification. So, Can- so Israel is, is, is rolling onto the scene, and some of these Canaanite nations, as we see, dig in their heels and they fight, they resist. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that some of these nations, they try to form a coalition, they try to come together, ally together to resist Joshua and Israel. But these Gibeonites, these cunning Gibeonites, they know what's coming at them. They sense that fighting is futile, and so they come up with this other plan. Look with me at verses 3 and following. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet, and they wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. And then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal Gilgal, and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. So the Gibeonites, they create this illusion that they're from some far off land. They they want to create the illusion that we're not a close neighbor. We're not in the crosshairs, Israel. We've come far. So they say, look, all our stuff is worn out. All of our sandals, our cloaks, our... Provisions, our food, it's dry and moldy. We've come on this long journey. Look at our stuff. 
Well, in reality, the city of Gibeon was just about eight miles from Jerusalem, just right in the middle of Canaan, right in the middle of this land to be conquered. Eight miles from Jerusalem, maybe 20 miles from where Joshua and Israel is camped at this time. And verse 24 of chapter 9 tells us that these Gibeonites, they, they, they had apparently had knowledge of God's orders to his people to drive out all the inhabitants. Apparently they were aware of that somehow. And whether or not the Gibeonites knew that there was a provision for Israel to actually enter into peace treaties with nations that were farther away, we don't know. But God made that provision that for nations people of peace, that they could enter into peace treaties with them, just not their immediate neighbors in Canaan. And so we don't know if they know that, but they seem to kind of play to that. They might also just be playing to Israel's pride. They might be saying, look, we've come from a far-off land, and we just want to be your vassal state. We just want to be subservient to you, to serve you. And so just do whatever you would like with us. We will serve you in your kingdom. And so we don't totally know their angle, but it's a brilliant strategy. But we do notice that the Gibeonites acknowledge God's power, and that's important. Verse 9, the Gibeonites answered, your servants, so they're referring to themselves, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Make a treaty with us. So they use these deceptive means, but, but behind all this is some measure of a fear of this God, of a proper fear of God and his people. If you remember Joshua chapter 2, we looked at Rahab the prostitute. We see her faith. We see how she had heard and seen and observed all the reports of what the God of Israel was doing, and she puts her faith in a very risky way in the God of Israel. So Rahab, here the Gibeonites, Others during the history of Israel, foreign nations, pagan peoples, acknowledging the power and the authority of God and submitting to him with whatever measure of faith they had. And so we have to give the Gibeonites credit. This is brilliant. It's, it's, it's a cunning strategy. They step out on a limb to avoid their utter destruction, to avoid what they knew was coming if they didn't adapt. When the rest of the Canaanites dig in and fight, Gibeon gets wise. But then how do Joshua and the leaders respond to this ruse? As we see, they respond with sinful foolishness. So we see here that Israel violates the command of the Lord. Again, as we see in places like Deuteronomy chapter 7, Exodus 34, and elsewhere, God says, don't make any treaties with these nations. Don't enter into peace agreements with with them, lest you be seduced by their false gods, their false religions, their idolatrous practices, lest your worship be compromised. Don't do it, Israel. 
And so they fail on that account. But they also fail to stay in a posture of humility before God by not seeking him. For many preachers, many interpreters, this, this, this is the hinge point. This very thing is the interpretive lens that we understand this passage. And so verse 14 becomes critical. And it is worth noting, verse 14 says, so the Gibeonites come to them, they create the illusion that they're from a distant country, they ask for a peace treaty, and then verse 14 says, the Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. So these Gibeonites say to Joshua and the leaders, they say, look, all of our bread is moldy, all of our provisions are worn out, our sandals are worn out. And what Joshua and the leaders say is, let me, let me see that. Let me see those. Let me, let me see that bread. Yeah, it looks, it looks pretty moldy. Seems like you've come from afar. It seems like you have been on a long journey, as you say. And then quickly we get to verse 15. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Well, there's been times in my life when, if I'm honest, I haven't completely consulted the wisdom of God. I haven't wholeheartedly sought Him in prayer around major decisions, not so major decisions. Times when I just operate on the data I have, my own sense of what is right or best in the moment. And some of it may be my personality. I like resolution. I like to make a decision and move forward. But as we do that, there's times when we can short-circuit the process of prayer and discernment that God invites us into. And so these times that I've had in my life, perhaps there's times that you resonate with that in your own life, we're called to repentance. We're called to reflection. And we seek God for courage to do it differently the next time. So Israel here is duped. They fall for it. But as we see in this text, this whole plan is soon discovered. We see here the people of Israel going to their leaders, going to Joshua and the leaders who were responsible for making this treaty, and they come and complain to them, what have you done? The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, and then verse 19, but all the leaders answered, we've given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do with them. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath that we swore to them. So the Gibeonites have used a brilliant strategy, cunning wisdom, operating with what they knew, operating from the fact that this was a losing battle. We've got to do something different. The Israelites, in turn, respond foolishly, you might say thoughtlessly, without prayer, without discernment. But the more we consider this text, I believe that we see, even in this drama, that God's grace is revealed. You'll notice in chapter 9, if you, if you look at it closely, that God is silent in this chapter. 
So all throughout Joshua so far and in what will follow, God is repeatedly speaking to Joshua, repeatedly speaking to the Israelites. The Lord said this, the Lord said that. But God is here silent. God is certainly sovereignly aware of what is going down in this treaty. But it's clear that Joshua and the other leaders are just making their own choices. And the question that I came to as I looked at this text, as I studied it, is what would have happened if the Israelites had sought God on this matter? Maybe God would have pointed out their deception and maybe God would have said, annihilate them as I commanded you. Period. Full stop. Or maybe God would have said, you know, I, 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 I see some proper fear of me in this people. Let them live. Let them become part of you. Let them learn my will and my way. Certainly we see that with the prostitute Rahab. She and her family are saved. They are brought into the covenant community because of her bold faith. And so certainly God does that. God welcomes that. But what we do know is that God takes this covenant seriously even if his people entered into it foolishly. So this oath, as we see, it's made in the name of the Lord, even if it wasn't directed by the Lord. It's made in God's name, even if it's not directed and commanded by God. So again, look at verse 19. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. What's interesting is that God doesn't forget this treaty. 400 years later, during the reign of a king named David, Israel suffers a severe famine in the land. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, when, when, when David goes to God and says, God, what's happening? Why is this devastation coming upon the land? God informs him that King Saul, who had been King David's predecessor, had actually broken this treaty with the Gibeonites and had attacked them. And so the famine was the punishment for, the, for breaking this treaty, breaking this oath, and then this all comes to light. David makes restitution with the Gibeonites, and then God heals the land. So God doesn't forget this. It's fascinating. This treaty, again, is made in God's name. It's under his oath, and so God's very honor is at stake. In this, one takeaway for us is that the people of God are called to keep their word. To reflect God, to reflect his nature, we live with integrity, as the Israelites were commanded to live. But but I want you to know some of the more specifics of how this plays out, because I think they're important. In verse 23, Joshua, we see, pronounces this curse. So this deception is uncovered. Joshua says, you are cursed, Gibeonites. But we learn of the specifics of that curse and the punishment, if you will, that they will face. Verse 22, look at this. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying, we live a long way from you while you actually live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. For the house of my God. 
So the punishment that they land on, right, is that the Gibeonites will be water carriers, woodcutters for the community of Israel. But then Joshua narrows the assignment down. He says, you will actually serve the altar of my God. You will serve in the tabernacle. You, are, you will serve in the house of God, the very place, the very center of our worship. You were assigned there. So the Gibeonites are placed on the front lines of Israel's system of worship. And it's fair to say that there, they're going to learn something of the will and the way and the word of this God. Today, this could look like not with the same terms, not with the same false pretenses, not with the same compulsion, but say we were to embrace some folks into our church community, folks who are not yet, have not yet embraced the Christian faith, but maybe folks who have some respect for religion. And we say to them, the best place for you is to prepare the elements of communion for us on Sundays. Or the best place is for you to prepare the water for baptisms. Or for you to read the word of God for us. Inevitably, as we get close to that, and as we see the will and the way and the word of God, that's going to change lives. That is going to reveal who our God is and what he has done. And so, friends, what's the point of this whole bizarre, strange, intriguing story for us? Well, first I would say to you that what unfolds here in Joshua 9 on this large scale involving Israel, involving the nations, involving the Gibeonites, what happens here on a large scale in some sense plays out in our own individual lives as well. So we see the various Canaanite kingdoms. We see how Gibeon handles the situation. And in our own lives, we can either resist, we can either fight, we can either push away the will and the way and the knowledge of God, or we can submit. And we can submit knowing that that is the only path to life for us. Salvation through Jesus Christ. So we can fight, we can resist, or we can choose the will and the way of God which is revealed in his word, which is revealed in his son Jesus Christ. We can choose to follow him in a life of humility and love and integrity and purity and holiness. The Gibeonites here, they know that the only path to life was found in submitting to this God, becoming somehow part of their society and being saved. Scripture is clear that the path of our sin and rebellion leads only to death, only to destruction. But the good news for us is that through Jesus Christ, God has offered us eternal life. And so turn to him today. But church, the other takeaway for us, I think, is that like Israel, in our lives, in my life, in your life, we and oftentimes many others have to live with the consequences of our choices, even if they're sinful choices. And these choices create for us heartache, sometimes challenges, pain along the way. 
Israel had to quite literally live with the consequences of the choice they made that day as these Gibeonites live and serve in their community for generations. But remember that even in that, even in the foolishness that was on display, even in the deception that God was sovereignly involved in redeeming this people and making something good of the missteps that were taken by Israel and by folding another people into his covenant community. Friends, in our lives, there's, there is true blessing in obeying in following the path of obedience to Christ and to his word. But we also know and we take heart that our God is a God of restoration, reconciliation, and redemption. As we see in God's word, through all of Israel's failures, God does not forsake his people. He stays faithful to them, even if he has to discipline them. But he works continually for the good of his people and for the good of the world. And friends, by his grace... He does the same for us today. Let us pray. And so God, we thank you for this word and we pray that you would give us courage to trust and follow and obey you. God, there and there alone is life. And for those who have not embraced you by faith, I pray this morning that you would work that in their hearts today. God, help us all to trust and follow you, knowing that you are with us, that you never leave us or forsake us. You promise your presence and your very spirit and your very empowerment. And so God, may that come to pass in our lives today and this week and always. In Jesus' name, amen.